Welcome to the Shifting Our Schools podcast, where we believe learning never stops. We create innovative and flexible professional development opportunities that support the current research and thinking in education today. This week's podcast episode aspires to set you up to take another step forward on your personal learning journey. Now, here's your host, Jeff Udick. Well, welcome back to Shifting Our Schools. So glad you were able to carve a bit of time out of your schedule to have a listen and learn along with us here at Shifting Schools. Before we jump into today's session with Rochelle, a world language and STEAM teacher, an attorney, an author, a consultant, a podcaster, a blogger, well, you get it. She's definitely likes to stay busy. And did I mention she just started her PhD? Anyway, you're in for a great conversation with a great lifetime educator. But before we get to the interview, I want to share with you some exciting professional development opportunities we have coming up for you as we head into December. The team and I have been gathering feedback from our listeners through email and via our newsletter, and the feedback on what educators are looking for right now kind of falls into two categories. One category is kind of a, where do we go from here? Or maybe a better way to put it is, where should I be focusing my limited time and energy? The other category is one I call quick hits. Basically, the I need something I can use right now that truly engages kids and doesn't take me a lot of time to set up and is really impactful in my classroom. So with that in mind, November 30th, December 1st, and December 2nd, I am running a lunchtime learning series that will take place at my lunchtime. Sorry, it had to be somebody's lunchtime to make the name work. Now, on November 30th at noon Pacific time, you can join me for Leading the Change, PD's next chapter. This session is for anyone who offers or is in charge of professional development within the school district. I'm thinking of instructional coaches, curriculum and instruction people, principals, team leaders, PLC leaders, heads of school. This session will focus on what changes are taking place in the professional development world. There are some models of professional development that will stay the same, and then there are some whole new models of PD that are emerging. This session looks at the research behind educator professional development and how we have a moment in time with new tools that everyone knows, think Zoom, to rethink the impact professional development has on educators and ultimately on student learning. We will look at some key findings in the research and then look at how we look forward and use our knowledge to create meaningful professional development for teachers. Look, I'll be frank with you. We were in a teacher shortage before the pandemic. And I think I can safely say now that every teacher is seeing what is happening in our profession. I have schools where for weeks, teachers have had to give up their prep period to cover classes for other educators out sick because they aren't enough subs. I personally have had three school districts cancel trainings on me because of a sub shortage. And here's the bad news. It's not going to get better for a while, which means sending teachers to conferences during the school year is over. Having subs cover teacher classes for full day or half day training, done. Asking teachers to come to a Saturday training after they just gave up every prep period for a week to help cover teachers who are out, good luck. You see, the models have to change because education is fundamentally changing, maybe forever. So that's what we're going to talk about and discuss. In the time we're in right now and for the foreseeable future, what are professional development models that work? And more importantly, what structures need to be in place to make sure that we're not wasting teacher time or district dollars? Now, on December 1st at 9 a.m. Pacific time, that's lunchtime for you on the East Eastern time zone. I'm running a free webinar that will be live streamed on YouTube, on my Twitter account, and hopefully my Facebook page, if I can figure out how to get the technology to work, titled, What Should You Do in 2022? I'm going to spend an hour talking about what trends I see emerging in the near future. I've worked with over 200 school districts here in the States, and have had conversations and worked with school leaders internationally as well. And the trends are becoming clear on where technology is heading in education and the impact it is going to have on everything. This session really for school leaders and IT directors, but really anyone who wants to hear what trends are happening. Some of them are internal. Some are pressures from external sources like our communities. 
This will focus specifically on technology and its role, which really, let's be honest here, everything nowadays in schools is impacted by technology. Again, this is a free live streamed webinar that of course will be recorded if you miss it live, but I do hope you can join me for the conversation in the chats. Also on December 1st at noon Pacific time, it's our lunchtime learning series, I'm running a session on Google My Maps. No, not Google Maps, Google My Maps. If you are an educator in any content area, I promise there is something in this training for you. Math teachers will eat it up. ELA teachers, we're talking about a whole new genre of writing called mapping stories, where you tell a story on a map. Science teachers, we'll turn on satellite view and well, the world is there in front of you to label and investigate. This session is for any and all teachers, I would say third grade and up. I will be in full geek out mode, so be ready. And I'll just give you this little taste. There is no, none, not one standard anywhere that says students color in a map correctly. Not one. So why? Why are we wasting time on paper maps in our classrooms where we have amazing maps at our fingertips that we actually use on almost a daily basis? Maps that zoom and tilt, maps that show live weather, and oh yeah, don't worry, you can color them perfectly with a click of a button. If you have students coloring maps in your classroom, stop it. It's a waste of time. And I'm going to show you why. I'm going to give you back, what, 20 minutes of class time? A night of homework? Or 40 minutes of class time if you're a third grade teacher? Just by getting you to stop having students color a map. We're going to learn to use the map that, get this, every kid already knows about and uses. It's our time, educators. Time for us to up our game. By the end of this session, you'll be able to leave the Zoom meeting and within minutes, start applying what you learned in the classroom. I'll say it again. I'll be in full geek out mode, so prepare yourself. We cover a lot of ground in 60 minutes. Because I'll be in full geek out mode, this will be recorded, so you can go back and rewatch it if you want or need to. There are a lot of clicks, a lot of ideas, and it's so easy to implement this highly engaging, highly useful tool in our classrooms. Lastly, on December 2nd at noon Pacific time, I'm running a session on getting started with podcasting. Whether you want to start a podcast with your class or maybe your school, or maybe after hearing about podcast professional development on November 30th at my free webinar, you want to learn more about how to get started your own podcast at your school. Or maybe you have a great idea you want to start a podcast about that isn't even related to education, like me. I'm starting a new podcast on real estate investing in the state of Washington in December. Whatever your motivation, I'll spend an hour with you talking about how we create the Shifting Our Schools podcast, how to get started for free or for very little investment, all the way to lights, camera, action on live streaming, a video cast or webinar on YouTube, and being able to connect that into Twitter if you want. It depends how far you want to go. We'll geek out for an hour. Come with questions and your own knowledge, and together we'll work to get your idea off the ground and running. So to recap, these three lunchtime sessions, Changing PD, Google My Maps, and Getting Started with Podcasting are all on sale now for 30 bucks. However, because you are a loyal podcast listener, we have a code for you to save 50%, making each session only 15 bucks. They will all be recorded as well, so if you can't make the live version because your lunchtime doesn't line up with my lunchtime, we'll email you the link to the session afterwards. All you need to do is go to shiftingschools.com store and pick which session or sessions you want to attend or get access to and use the code, ready? Use the code LLSNEW50. That's Lunchtime Learning Series, new 50, LLSNEW50. I'll put the code in the show notes as well for you to make it easy for you to copy and paste. So head over to shiftingschools.com slash store or shiftingschools.com and click on the learning pathway link under the on offer tab. Of course, if you have questions or need more information, you can reach out to us as well at info at shiftingschools.com. Now, I'm excited for you to listen to Rochelle and I discuss artificial intelligence in the classroom, the power of digital storytelling, as well as what we really mean when we say the word engagement in education. What type of engagement are you going for? 
I'm excited for you to hear this one. And with that, on the show. Welcome back to another episode of Shifting Our Schools. So excited to be back here with another great interview with Rochelle. Rochelle, we're excited to get you uh, out in front of the Shifting Our Schools uh, podcast listeners and out in the newsletter uh, over at shiftingschools.com and all the work that we're doing over here. It's always great when we get to connect with other educational consultants and teachers to help tell their story and just motivate us all to do the work we are. So welcome, Rochelle, and tell us a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, and uh, what you're into these days. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on your podcast. I've been looking forward to talking with you. And what am I, let's see, there are so many things, right? It's just like, what are we not doing right now? (laughs) I mean, anybody, not just even in education, it just, everything just got so much busier in the past year and a half. Uh, Although some days do tend to slow down a little bit, but it's not a bad thing to be busy. So I do keep pretty busy. I am uh, a Spanish and STEAM teacher in Pittsburgh at a school where I've been teaching for, we'll just say for a while. (laughs) And uh, I kind of lose track because I started there um, back in the, well, I won't say how long, but when I started there is years ago, but I also don't necessarily consider that like the start of my teaching career there because I had gone to law school and graduated mm. in 2006 and that whole experience kind of changed me. So sometimes I think of like the teacher I became after graduating law school because I was so different from that experience that oh, sometimes I feel like that was the start of my teaching career. So I teach full time. I'm a consultant full time and uh, do a lot of other things in education. I, I, I write, I do some blogging a couple of books. Uh, there's always some things I forget about. I'm also an attorney, which usually I forget to <laughs> that just because there have been so many things along the way. Sure. And, uh, you know, usually people, some people remind me like, Oh, well, aren't you? I went, Oh yeah, I am. But it's not something like th- that we use every day, even though a large part of that ties into the work that I do definitely in my classroom, right. but, uh, also in the work that I do as a consultant. So, I always have just loved learning, and I'm currently enrolled in a doctoral program uh, at Duquesne and uh, just started a course a couple of weeks ago. So I I guess I don't really like a lot of downtime, but it's, I don't know, there's opportunities and I just hate to pass them up because one, I like learning and two, I feel like it's an opportunity for me to learn something that's different or better for my students and for my colleagues and my network. And so that's uh, that's why I just kind of dive in to as much as I can. So is the PhD in on the attorney side or is it on the education side? Which way are you going with the PhD? Good question. Like I should probably check into that. Uh, <laughs> I just, just actually, we had, it, it's, it's a doctorate in instructional technology. Okay. And so I have a master's in that. I had actually, right. when I, I got my undergraduate degree in teaching French and couldn't find a job teaching, I went back and became certified in teaching Spanish. It took a couple of years in which I substituted. So I have been teaching longer than I've been at my school. But during that time, I became interested in law. So I had already been teaching for, I think, five years before I uh, applied to a law school in Pittsburgh, which was the only one that had an evening program because I wasn't doing it to get out of teaching. Sure. I was just interested in it for my own, you know, my personal reasons. And uh, it was one of those things where I thought, I don't want to wake up someday and think, gee, I wonder if I could have, should have done this yeah. thing. So I uh, never got the master's in between because I didn't, there wasn't something that I was really interested in, but in my classroom, I started to use more technology and look for more ideas. And that's when I went to Google to see, like typed in all the terms, like education, technology, classroom, <laughs> language, you know, come up with a mix to see if there were programs or courses to take. Cause there had been like an eight year gap where I hadn't taken a lot of courses. So uh, the master's is in structural technology and that I finished in 2016. And at the time, uh, my one instructor said, you should just go into the doctoral program now. And I, I said, well, what's that like? And he explained, and there, there were, I think three or four courses that were heavily involving like statistics and spreadsheets. And I said, I just, I can't No, I had one course that, that nearly did me in, in the masters at that point. And, uh, I thought, you know, I just want to see where this takes me for the next couple of years. So it's, I've been, I've been busy for the last five years doing different things. And had it not been for the law school or the master's experience, I, I don't know what I would be doing right now, mm-hmm. honestly. I'd have more time probably in my yeah, day, yeah. but um, but I am very I'm very fulfilled in the work that I do, and um, always just looking for more. You know, there's always more to be done, always more to learn. 
Yeah. Well, I, I love, you know, being a world language teacher and a technology lover is, you know, uh, I think is a great combination. You don't find that combination very often, uh, which I really, I really appreciate when I get the opportunity to talk to world language teachers who understand and see how can you, you know, bring technology into the classroom. And I'm excited to kind of dig into some of that today. Um, and I, we, we got a couple of questions that uh, as we were kind of getting ready for today that we're going to kind of go through here on the podcast. And I just love some of the stuff that you're writing. You, like you said, you're writing all over the place, which is great. You've been on a, a ton of different podcasts. You have your own podcast too. Uh, but one of the ones that stuck out from with me was back in July over at uh, Getting Smart, you wrote an article titled the growing need for skills in artificial intelligence. And in there you, I love this. And I'm going to quote you in the, in the article here, you say, quote, when it comes to artificial intelligence, giving students the chance to learn and a more hands-on or self-directed manner will make a difference. We need to give students the chance to try something, to fail at it, to adapt, and then to set new goals. Mm -hmm. I love that. (laughs) When you, when you, how, how has that kind of transitioned into your classrooms? What does that look like in your, your STEAM classroom, in your world language classrooms, that ability to set up situations so that kids have an opportunity to fail and try again and adapt? What's that look like for you? Well, you, you touched on it. First of all, like one of the questions I often get is what is a Spanish teacher doing teaching about artificial intelligence or augmented virtual reality and things? And it's because my school had gotten a grant to change our library into like a makerspace and mm. brought in steam and me teaching French and Spanish at the time arts <laughs> was right where, you know, I fit that perfectly. And so I started with teaching robots, like hummingbird robots and coding for a full year. I was not really that great at it. So there was a lot of failing and learning <laughs> um, on my part, sure. but lear- learning from students and watching them take mm. the lead. But then when I, in the second year, when I thought, oh, I'm getting pretty good at this, uh, after that, that shifted to, I think, the seventh grade at that point. And so I had an opportunity to teach about whatever I wanted to. And of course, I didn't have just one answer. I had this list of 10 things, one of which was digital citizenship. I, that was huge for me, for the kids. But then I was just so interested in like how the world was changing, uh, how much the world has changed since I was in eighth grade, which is what I love about this course, because it's eighth graders. And I get to laugh. I get to bring in all this old technology, like rotary phones and walkmans <laughs> and records and pagers and you name it, and just get them involved in like thinking about the future and what's it going to look like and what, how is technology going to evolve and how is it going to impact you in your daily life and in the work that you're going to be doing at some point in the future. So artificial intelligence was not something that I knew a lot about. And with getting sure. smart, they were writing, they had themes that they were writing, like, here's a list of our themes for each month. And for the first probably two years, I was writing blogs about things that I was doing. And so it was very comfortable for me. Like, here's what I did. Here's what I used. Done. But I wasn't pushing myself to learn more and bring new experiences in. Part of that was because I didn't feel like I was an expert. I certainly wasn't an expert, but I didn't really know where to begin. So I I took the opportunity to dive in, to learn about AI, totally surprised at how much is like everywhere in our everyday lives. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And then what, what that means for students. And so when I started, I really didn't know a lot. I knew enough to get them started, found opportunities for them. And then just, I mean, ever since then, this is probably my third year of teaching about AI. It's a big part of what we do. But what I love about it is that I don't really tell them what it is. Like I Mm. get them started and we have conversations about it. We make predictions about it. And then I have, there's so many, you know, there's so many resources out there uh, that we can choose from. And we go through a lot of different um, programs and websites and resources, and I let them do that on their own and figure out, do they want to train a chatbot, for example, or they want, there's a lot that comes with like Google, for example, Google AI experiments. And the students become frustrated. And there are times that they ask me, well, how do I do this? I'm like, you know, you just have to push through that. Meanwhile, half, half of the time they're asking me, it's, it's not that I really know the answer because yeah, that's right. <laughs> I haven't done all the things. Um, but I love it because one, it shows like you have to have that resilience to keep going and it's okay to fail because that's how they're still learning and failure. Right. Of course. Two, don't, don't just think that because I'm the one standing here talking to you that I know all there is, I want to learn from you. And so there've been so many aha moments for me from students where they've done something. I'm like, how did you do that? Mm. You know, I worked on that for like three hours and you just did that in 10 minutes. Yeah. But I think it's a good lesson for them because in life, I mean, we know even as adults, like not everything comes easy. And 
sometimes you, it's really uncomfortable. And for me, and that's what, where the law school piece tied in is I got to go back to be a student and I was very uncomfortable not knowing the answers. I'm afraid mm-hmm. of being incorrect when I responded. And I transferred that into my classroom and I noticed that like, we really do have to open up opportunities for students in these areas like AI, for example, that is totally on the rise. And who knows five, 10 years from now, how much it's going to be even more in our personal lives, of course, but in the professional work that we do. But we need students to create and we need students to design or be the ones like involved in, I don't know, sharing ideas about how things work and also embrace that like risk taking and that failing and and being okay with it. And I can tell you that in my classroom, I definitely model that because I'll say like, yep, didn't go well, or yep, I should have done this a different way. But then inviting them into that conversation too, uh, I think, you know, I used to think I didn't, I couldn't teach about AI in my Spanish class. Right. You can't, anybody can't, it's not specific to technology. And I think that for all teachers, even for younger students, whatever content area, there are ways that we can bring it in so that students are aware of it and how it might impact their lives. And just, it sparks curiosity uh, for, I mean, not just learning, but for everyday life, like Am I inter- interacting with like a person or a chatbot yeah. right now? Uh, sure. I know that was a very, very long answer, but it's just, you know, it's not something that I would have done. I don't know, like six, seven years ago, because I said, well, I'm just a Spanish teacher. I shouldn't teach about these topics, but my students use language translators, which is powered by artificial intelligence. Exactly. So I bring that right into the classroom now. And I don't tell them you shouldn't do this. We look at it and we compare and analyze. And part of that is saying like, trust yourself too. And if you make mistakes, like I can work with you. I can't work with that AI that translated that document for you, but I can help you. Uh, So there, there are a lot of great ways to bring it in as a lesson to have students to create with it. And it's fun for teachers too. I mean, we, we, we're supposed to be ongoing, constant learners. So. Yeah. And to me, that's where my mind went, you know, it was like, I'm thinking like, a lot when I'm working with world language teachers, we get this like, well, kids just go to the internet and they translate things using Google translate. Right. And there's part of me that's like, you're right. Absolutely. And the other part of me is like, but that's the world we live in. Like as somebody who travels a lot, I use Google translate. Like the last time I was in Hong Kong, I had an entire conversation with the taxi driver over the Google app. Like I held my phone out and it's translating back and forth in real time. Like there's an AI bot that is doing this translation on the fly in the back of a taxi cab. Yeah. And I think if we were able to, to your point, like let's bring AI in and say, you know what, this is part of Spanish. This is part of world cultures and understanding what the limitations are. Like the thing that I have found with these, with these, all of these apps, and I'll use Google Translate as an example. If you're asking somebody in whatever language, where's the bathroom? It almost always gets that right. Yeah. If you're trying to have an intellectual conversation, good luck. Right. right? There, there becomes conversational is, is fine. But as soon as you get above conversational into academic talk, that's where these AR, they're just not there yet. Mm-mm. And I think that'd be so great if you could get kids into saying, okay, here's how AI works. Here's all the cool things we can do with AI. Here's a way you can use it in world languages. You need to know what the limitations are. You know, if you're just trying to figure out a word, that's great. It's probably not going to give you the right, the right verbiage, or it's not going to give you the right pronouns to use, but there, it'll give you a word. You still have to do the work. And I think if we approached it that way, rather than saying no use of technology in my world language class, because I need you to talk it, speak it and write it, Mm -hmm. you know, I just wonder if it would give us a different avenue into looking at things like digital citizenship, looking at things like how is technology impacting our lives in, in so many different ways, cool ways, really cool ways that you can right. go somewhere and actually talk to people. You have no idea what the language is. I know. And I, and I think it's important to understand what the benefits are, but as a student who's trying to learn it and understand it and build their skills, because it is, even though they don't believe me, I'm like, do you have any idea? Like I took French in high school. I didn't know that I would be a teacher, let alone a Spanish teacher right now. It helps you in your own language of English and just so much of the processing, but there are times to rely on it. Like I, if you go to Hong Kong, like you said, I mean, how quickly are you going to pick up the language? So it is that convenience of having something and it may or may not get you the the totally perfect, what, you know, native speakers would say. Yeah, exactly. 
it gets you close enough close to negotiate enough. The meaning and, yeah. and it's, and, and sometimes it's for survival too. Like it's good to have it, but it's also good to understand like the limits of it and the accuracy of it. And uh, you know, the benefits of it too, of course. Yeah, of course. And I think that conversation are the types of conversation we have in all classrooms with mm-hmm. all technology, but I love that there's this, you know, there's this Avenue um, within the world languages that, um, you know, that I think we can bring in and we can really enhance, you know, instead of right. saying, don't use it, it's how do you use it? Where do you use it? How much do you trust it? And so mm-hmm. the great question, I think every kid should have to ask every day in school, how much do you trust it? How do you know you can trust it? At what level is that trust for you? That's how you use technology in today's world. You know, you have yeah. do, you do a lot of writing. I mean, you write blogs and books and, and everything. Um, can you talk a little bit about like your, your process as an author and you've talked about how going through, you know, get, becoming an attorney and going back to school has impacted you in the classroom. Can you talk about how much like doing all of this writing, um, how, how do you see that? Like, is there, is there a flow that you get into that you then bring into your classroom that you can, you have kids kind of follow that, like what real authors do, this is how real authors write. Are you seeing any of that translation? Uh yeah, you know, one thing is uh, you're, I do a lot of writing and it's not something, aside from when I was like 18 and I was reading books and I've actually written about this, like I was reading books like John Grisham and Mary Higgins Clark and, you know, it just like when you watch the Olympics, like you get this mindset like, well, I could do that. I could yeah, write right. like that. <laughs> it doesn't look that hard. I, I could go do that. And then you try and you're like, oh, but the problem with writing is that I, I did start to write something which which was a mesh of the books that I was reading because I thought that that's the way that they had to be. Mm. And, and I still have it's a spiral notebook. It's at my parents. I think it's hot pink or something. And I never got rid of it, but I never really thought of myself as being a writer or an author or anything. And I did a lot of writing in, I mean, in undergrad, yes, but when I was in law school, goodness. And in the master's program, a ton. Uh, and I started to blog because I thought it was cool. And that's a true story is that I heard, Oh, blog, maybe I'll blog, even though I didn't really know what blogging meant. (laughs) And um, there was a company that asked me to do a blog because I was doing presentations at conferences and they said, Oh, would you mind writing a short blog about, you know, how you're using, it was survey monkey. I was using that in my classroom to have students do like quick reflections, give me feedback. And sometimes even for a quiz, like it wasn't the traditional use of it. Right. They asked me and they were like five, words. I'm like, geez, 500 words is a lot. <laughs> like what I write about. And um, so I did it. And then after yeah. that, I just started to write more and more. But um, I had students write. But years ago, I was having students do in an old school like notebook journaling, which is essentially blogging sure. and, and helping them to build their skills and write about topics that they were interested in or else sparking their curiosity. So all of that goes to say like, I didn't always know that I would be a writer or I would be writing at the extent to which I'm writing now. But I think it does serve as a good model for students who like have a lot of students who really like to write and they're very creative, uh, but there's that lack in confidence in saying like, I don't know what I could write about or I don't have the great ideas or something. And I think for me, when I write, I mean, I have some hacks for how I write that much. I do a lot of speaking and let the text go right in. Of course, I have to figure out like, what did I say that sounded like this? Because it doesn't always pick it up perfectly but it does save me time. And often I might go for a walk in my neighborhood and I have, you know, the brain is racing with all these ideas and I'll just talk and it might be a mix of like five different, totally unrelated ideas. But then when I come back and I I step away from it and then look at it, then I can put it into something that's actually like a tangible blog uh, or even in books. I mean, that's how I had done a lot of it. But the part that is, that kind of ties in a little bit with like students in learning. I mean, I'll just throw an example, like project-based learning where you're setting goals for yourself and you're reevaluating. It's not just like, I wrote this, now I'm done. Right. It's, I wrote this and now whether it's a blog, whether it's a daily journal prompt, whether sure. it's a book or anything that you write, you go back and you look at it and you think, oh goodness, like that really wasn't that good. Or I can't yeah. believe I wrote that. Or I've had books that, I, that have been published. Even in law school, there were books that have mistakes in them. And you think like, you're paying all this money for these books and right. you're reading about these laws and it's critical. And then you get to this like typo and you're like, what just happened? Uh, but it all shows like we all make mistakes yeah. and we learn from those mistakes. And it's just that continuing to learn and evolve in whatever the skill is. If it's writing, 
you know, it ties into all of our communication. And for some, I think that even the writing helps people become more comfortable in speaking because you share your ideas, you have an audience, you put it out, there might be a small audience in your classroom. It could just be you exchange papers or books, or if you're writing online, you know, digitally, there's great options for having students blog, but there's so many benefits tied into that that help them build those skills, especially in looking at, you know, social emotional learning skills. And if they're like developing their self-awareness, like, wow, I wrote this in Spanish. I can't believe I wrote that, but now look at me in the middle of the year. Yeah. And then at the end of the year, to look back at that, and the same for us as teachers, um, sure. writing, writing our own blogs. And even if it's not something that's very lengthy, I even said just randomly throughout the day, grab post-it notes and put down something that, you know, came to your mind and just stick them all together and maybe process it later as a blog. But it's interesting how all of the ideas and things kind of get, you know, chunked together, but taking that time to sit back and reflect and think through it and, and figure out how to improve on it. Because we know there's always, <laughs> there's definitely always improvement. There are always improvements to be made is what I'm, what I'm finding. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you find you reflect differently? I love asking this question to bloggers. Do you find that you reflect differently when you just say like, we know reflection is a big part of learning. We know that even at the end of the day of teaching, you know, I'm driving home from school, I'm reflecting on the day. And that's one type of reflection, right? And it's a, it, it's a great reflection. Mm-hmm. But, but do you find there's there's a different process? There's more concrete of something you do when you actually put it in a blog and you publish it to the 4 billion people who have access to it on the internet? Do you just find like the, it's, it's just different? Yeah, it is a little. And, and it's scary, though, too, because, you know, there was that fear of, well, what if, what if I wrote something incorrectly? Or, you know, I don't know, what if somebody has this opinion and gives me some pushback? But I mean, that, again, is still part of learning. But it almost, I mean, it validates your ideas in the sense that you put it out there and you're like, okay, I feel this way. So I'm expressing it. Right. But I think it also comes back to building that confidence uh, for us as educators and sharing our stories. And, uh, you know, there is that, like, how many people actually read it? And sometimes that's that's a point that, that actually stops people from writing is they think, well, nobody will read it. What do I write yeah. about? But I always say, like, even if only one person reads whatever you have written, that just might be the thing that they need to read. Because yeah. I've had experiences like that where I've had conversations uh, and sometimes it's not even a written form. I mean, it's just a couple of ideas and it could sure. be a voice thing. I mean, somebody might do their own podcast and maybe they don't hit publish. Maybe they just keep all of these recorded and then they go back to it and listen and think like, I'm going to turn this into a blog because people do that too. I mean, it's, they're, yeah, they're not doing like the blogging and then writing. I mean, the podcasting, yeah. and then writing the blog. It's they're you know, they're working together there to save time, but you're reaching different audiences. And I just think it's important to whatever we're doing find a way to reflect on it, whether that's in writing, whether that's in a voice note, whether that's in your podcast, even if it's just for you to hear initially, but find a way to share it, even if it's a, you know, a small network that you have or with your students, dive right in with them and say, you know, I was thinking about blogging and I was thinking that we're all going to do some blogging and uh, I, I, you know, co-learners with them and modeling it. I think it's all good. Yeah. And I, I just, because I always found, you know, I've been blogging since 2005 and I I just always find that there's sure I reflect in a lot of different ways Mm -hmm. when it comes to sitting down and actually putting out a blog post, there's like the different, like I'm more like, is that really what I think? Is that really like, do I really want to tell people that's what I think? Like I I go through a whole nother level of processing what I'm saying that I don't when I'm just driving home at the end of the day or, you know, a bunch of random notes, like you're saying, like write a bunch of stuff down on sticky notes and then turn around. And then, but when you actually have to write, put it out there and it doesn't have to be long, like you're saying like 200 words, but they're like 200, like I'm putting out for others. This is my, is what I'm thinking. This is where Mm -hmm. I'm going to stand. And and to your point, like going back, like I love going back and reading stuff I wrote in 2006. And I either am like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I believe that. Or man, I, I was so far ahead of my time. I didn't even know it. You know, like you just, I know. it's so funny when you go back and reflect on stuff like that. So it is. Yeah. You think why? Wow. What, what's up with this sentence? You know, yeah. but <laughs> what, what was that about? Somewhere. You yeah. Know, we're not going to be perfect. I mean, some people are perfect like right off the bat, but yeah. there's always, there's always growth involved. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so one of the other things when, when we were kind of uh, looking through some of the stuff to talk about, 
in March of 2020, you gave a, an online talk entitled Creating Chaos to Re-Energize Your Classroom. Mm-hmm. And in the talk, you addressed some of the misconceptions around engagement. I love this, <laughs> right? Can you share more on how your work, working definition of engagement has evolved in your career? And like, what do you think is that misconception of engagement we have right now? In yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I laugh because when I... Um, initially my, my idea of engagement was the students are playing a game. They're doing an activity and they look happy. They're having fun. Like it's enjoyable. If the principal walks in, everybody's doing something that's engagement. Yeah. And it's, you know, they're learning and it's great. And then, I mean, and that was a very, you know, superficial surface level. And, but I, I started to notice, and this probably goes back, well, it has to go back probably almost seven years now at this point, six, seven years, because I noticed like, okay, if we're doing these activities and they look like they're really involved and engaged in them, then whenever I am giving them assessments, they're doing activities or they're speaking, like they should, they should have that content knowledge. They should have that capability to carry on the conversations or do whatever. And they just weren't. Mm. And I thought, okay, something's wrong. So when I got my master's, I did a semester of independent study and it was solely focused on student engagement I can't tell you how many articles I read. The funny story is this one time I read this big journal article and I was highlighting going through. And at one point I was like 80% through and I thought, this really sounds familiar. (laughs) I had read the the same thing twice and I had pretty much highlighted and made notes the same same way. Yeah. And it wasn't like I read it back to back, but I I totally was able to understand like, okay, this is what student engagement is. Mm -hmm. It looks different on every student. It's not about like, Hey, I'm excited playing this game. And so that definitely helped me to kind of pinpoint like what it is and what it's not. And so students being, you know, excited about learning. Yeah, that's part of it. But whenever they're, you know, connected to it and they're, they're motivated, they're engaged in it because they're interested in it and they have choices in it. Like there's a lot that went into it. And for me, I actually was like observing students using like different activities uh, in my classroom and then having conversations with them to find out like, what did you like about this? Or what did you not like? Or how did this help you to learn? And then using that to then plan forward. And when I have given that chaos talk, the reason that I named it that, and it was actually another time I had going rogue creating chaos was because for all the years up to that point, I had been teaching the way I had been taught and not saying that, that they were all wrong. It's just, that was my experience. And right. I was using what worked for me. It's going to work for everybody. You want to learn French, you want to learn Spanish. Like we did this. This is how did I did it. it. Yeah. <laughs> and I realized like, it's not going to, because not every, not every student is going to love creating a menu in Spanish or right. doing a skit in front of the classroom or memorizing poetry, which I swore I would never have my students do like my teachers did. But it evolved over those experiences and just, you know, time talking with students, doing some research for that course, writing a paper and realizing, okay, I need to bring about some changes in my classroom, which mean I need to get out of the way. I need to totally like break free from whatever I was doing. And so, um, and let students be more social with one another and kind of take a lead more in their learning. And it is still evolving because after the first, well, the first year was kind of, you know, trial and error in a lot of ways. But yeah. the second year, I think what I did is in September, I, I had rows of desks. Now it's different now because we're back in rows of desks, but I looked at my classroom and I thought, I cannot connect with my students. I can't reach them. They're not interacting with one another. And there were other things too, like social emotional learning skills, you know, the relationship sure. building, all of that was kind of, I don't know. And and their, their motivation was dropping down in the spring uh, from the prior year. So got rid of the desks uh, in the rows, put them in stations, really didn't know what I was doing. Like, well, let's just try station rotation. (laughs) So uh, we did that. And then I tried some different methods like project-based learning and genius hour and choice boards. There was like this long list of things that I shared in that. And every time I talk about it, I laugh. I'm like, yep, I really didn't know what I was doing. I just knew that what I was doing wasn't really working that well. And not for not all students. I mean, there were some students that no matter what I did, they were engaged because they wanted to learn the Spanish. They were just, they were excited. They were invested in it. But then there were some students that were like, I, I don't want to take Spanish. <laughs> I have to take it, you know? So trying to find a way to reach them so that it pulled them in. And sometimes it was a game. Sometimes it was an activity. It was just enough of a hook to pique their curiosity and their interest to see how the, the language learning was applicable or could be applicable to their life now or in the future. And, um, you know, giving them a chance to 
you know, give me feedback. And sometimes it was, I don't want to say harsh, but I did have students say, you know, I really like class so much better this year than I did last year. And I thought, well, I actually said, I don't know how I feel about that statement. I appreciate it, but I'd like to know more. Can you tell me why? And a lot of the things they were saying was because I had changed from me standing in the front, talking to them and, and interacting with them more and letting them decide what to do for the day in those stations or work with a partner or work on their own because they weren't comfortable or record something using a tool, for example. And that built confidence and comfort where after a few months, the students were saying to me, I feel like I'm part of a learning community. Like I'm excited Mm. to come to Spanish. I want to know what comes next. We did project-based learning. Like they, they stopped, they cared about the grade, but they said, I really don't care about the grade. I care about what am I going to learn next? Where do I go from here? How can I improve on it? And so None of that came about overnight, of course. Uh, There was a lot of me going, yeah, that didn't really work out, or I'm not sure how this is going to go. But it was something we engaged in, (laughs) no pun intended, and and were involved in together. And it was a process. And I told them, I said, I I was really wrong about what I thought student engagement meant, because I think Mm -hmm. it's important for students to understand why we're choosing methods or tools in our classroom, not just because like I'm the teacher and this is what we're doing, but I want them to see like the bigger picture of it and uh, you know have those conversations because I do value, I mean, we, we get feedback from our administrators and we need feedback from our students because we're working with them every single day. And if yeah. we think you're engaged and they're like, we're yeah. totally not, how can we kind of bridge that together? So Well, and I love the underlying thing that you're talking about. And I just keep thinking to myself as I'm hearing you talk is where you started with that story is this kid's motivation was down. My idea of engagement, like I, the kids weren't engaged anymore and whatever the old way was. Right. And instead of, and this just, this is going to sound bad, but instead of blaming the kids and saying, mm. Hey, look, I'm do look, I'm teaching Spanish. Like I've taught Spanish. Like I was taught Spanish. So therefore this is the way you learn Spanish. If you're not motivated kid, tough luck. That's on you. That's on me. Right. Instead, you took a step back and said, Oh, something's not working. Desks in a row aren't working anymore. I need to try something different. And I think this, this, there's this ownership as, as teachers that I think we, a lot of times put on kids of, well, I taught the lesson. They're not motivated or engaged. That's not my fault. That's their fault versus, versus the opposite of saying, if kids in my class aren't engaged, that's on me, not on them. I need to do something different. I need to move the desks. I need to do project-based learning. I need to bring in something fun, like learning about artificial intelligence and how the Google translate, like whatever it happens to be like, that's on me. That's not the kids' fault. That's my job. That's what, that's what I do as an educator. And I think that's just like hearing you talk throughout that entire thing was like even getting feedback from kids, right? Getting feedback from kids is a way of saying like, am I doing okay? Mm -hmm. Are you engaged? And if they say no, that's going to hurt. At <laughs> yeah. least you know. Right, <laughs> right. Try something different. You know, if they're like, no, this sucks. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. Thanks for telling me. What, yeah. what would be better? Help me figure out what would be better. Rather than just saying, no, I'm sorry. I I, I taught it. You didn't learn it. So that's not my fault. I'm sorry. You, you, you know, you're all about the grades, not about learning and you're not motivated anymore, which we do yeah. get at the end of the year. It's just what happens. And that's a great time, you know, to like try something new and bring in project-based learning, see how it works and see, see how it goes. I mean, you just, there's not, there's really no way to fail. No, no. I mean, the only, well, I guess the only way to fail is to not try anything, right? Because you don't know what you're missing out on. Keep doing what you're always doing and expecting different results. Right. That's That's that. Yeah. That's, is that they define, is it insanity or something? Yeah. I forget. Yeah. The quote, right. Right. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is um, digital storytelling. Um, digital storytelling, of course, has been around for a long time. Uh, it's a very popular topic for a long time. Where do you see uh, digital storytelling going from here? And for folks who maybe haven't been part of the conversation for a while, why uh, why do you see it as one of the one thing to be paying attention to now? Has digital storytelling changed? Do you think there's new apps, new ways to do it? What do you think for you is why do you think digital storytelling is coming back all of a sudden as the hot new thing? Yeah, I well, I think part of it is just because with schools closed last year and so many people not in person, and of course relying on technology to keep learning going sure. and give students different ways. But I think the other part of it is that, you know, like for me, again, 
for years, projects were, this is how I want this project. Here's the rubric. It has to be like this. And then kids would come in with like a big poster covered in glitter. And then I'm covered (laughs) in glitter. And I would take points off because it didn't fit that rubric. And what I realized in the process is one, I can't believe I did that. Uh, I mean, they need to follow instructions because like, if it's a job and they have to do something in a certain way, of course they need to do that. But I realized like, you know, not every kid likes to draw, not everyone wants to use technology and finding this mix. But then as a Spanish teacher, the reason I got, I got into using a lot more technology is because one, there's a lot of ways to practice languages with the tech, but two, I mean, how many times I'm sure you've heard it too. Like I took X amount of years of French, Spanish, whatever language, and I don't remember anything. And I think, goodness, I hope my students remember (laughs) their language after spending time with me. But the reality of it is they need to build these different skills Mm. and how can I help them to build skills that they need in the future, whether it's being, you know, technology proficient and understanding digital citizenship or how to communicate, collaborate whenever you're not in the same place as we've learned this past year and a half. And so with digital storytelling, I mean, there are so many different ways to do that. But what I like about it is that with all of the options, you know, as educators, we can give students a chance to just create something that's sharing what they've learned in a way that meets their interests, their needs, their creativity, or as some of my students say, like the lack thereof, because (laughs) they, you know, whatever you pick a certain app or something may have thousands of templates available in it. You know, like one, one tool that I really like to use is Buncee because they have like 38,000 or more at this point to choose from and students who have pushed back and said, but I only want to draw, or I don't want to do this, or I don't want to be on the camera they have those options in there where they can still create in mm. what meets their comfort level. So they there was a draw feature, which is sure. great. You can draw, uh, they can record audio, they can record video, whether or not they want to be on the camera. And then they have this product where they've built through technology, they're practicing digital citizenship skills, and they're also designing something in the process, obviously practicing the content, but then creating something that's purposeful, meaningful, because then even though they might not be total fans at first when I say, oh, I can use this next year as you know an example right. or to teach the lesson, like it helps them to create something. I think that's, it's definitely more meaningful and relevant to what they're doing because they're in control of what they decide mm. to create. And it doesn't require much. It doesn't have to be some great platform or app that's out there because we know that adults included we always have our phones in our hands, right? Yeah, that's right? So we're constantly using our phones to take pictures or if we're on different social media platforms and it's just creating this story using multimedia in some format. And we see it all the time, no matter what social media you go to, um, creating different things, getting out into the world, like digital storytelling is fantastic, not just for students, but for teachers as well. Like welcome to school and you create this whatever tool you use and it's like you're walking around your school or yeah. students in a history class are doing a virtual tour of a town or historical place. I mean, there's so many possibilities that they can use uh, any of those tools that are out there. I mean, there is, there's an unbelievable list of them. Yeah, for sure. But it, yeah. just, it just helps them to understand the content more, but apply it in a way that is more meaningful to them And it's just, I think it's just fun because they take control of it and they have the freedom and opportunity to create what they want, but in a way that's supported by us because like we're kind of guiding them a little bit from the side and, uh, you know, and then when they're done, it's like, oh my goodness, like I made this, this whole thing, whatever it is. And it's something that we can then share with others. And it's a, it's a, a product or artifact that then later on they can share whenever they're going to, who knows, whatever they do after they leave our classrooms to have something that they created along the way. And I think it's good for them to look back on because I don't know, papers sometimes, I love paper projects, but it's nice to have something that you can get access to when you need it, aside from projects that you're like, oh, here's my grade and right. kind of casting aside. I think they're more yeah. invested in it. When you do digital storytelling stuff with students, do you limit, do you say you need to use one of these three apps or do you just say, there's a lot of apps out there, (laughs) find one that fits whatever you believe your story needs to be or how you see yourself. Here are some examples. Here are some tools kids have used in the past. The world is your oysters, kids, go get it. Or do you say you must use one of these couple tools? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a combination of that. Uh, Hmm. I, I do typically, there are times where I have all students use the same app just because I want them 
to get, you know, I don't know, comfortable with it. And yeah, learn the app. Yeah. We're the, whenever, whenever they have the access to it in my class, they can use it in their other classes. So sure. it might just be that one thing where they don't want to use PowerPoint anymore. And they're like, wow, this is awesome. Like I can put these 3d objects, animations, yeah. and it's all in one. Uh, so that's great. But then it gives them something at their comfort level. But I, I typically give a list and then one of them is like your choice, or if you have a better idea, let me know or something mm. to leave it open to them. And that didn't necessarily come about because of me. It was because a student came in one time with something they had created. And they went, I have my, and I can't remember uh, what it was right now. And I went, oh, was that on the list? And they went, no. And I went, <laughs> okay. And they said, is that bad? And I said, no, I don't think so. I just, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think about it. You know, I gave no. you these options and it, it was one I was familiar with. Oh, I think it was actually iMovie at the time okay. now that I go back. And I just never used it. So I never really yeah, put right. it on the list because I figured it was something everyone was kind of already familiar with at sure. that point. So, um, you know, but, but they did it and it's just, I, I think that they like to have the choices and sometimes their choices are way better than mine, but also in the process, they're teaching the other students in the class or teaching me. Yeah. Here's a cool app. If you haven't <laughs> seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I know them, but then they'll put something in. I'm like, well, how'd you do that? Yeah. They said, you know, technology, don't you know everything? I said, clearly not, because yeah. I didn't know that you could do that with yeah, it. And course. I think that that's great for, you know, that co-learning with students or learning from students. And, and they yeah. get excited about that too. Yeah. One of my favorite tools right now to use with kids is Adobe Spark. Yeah. Um, I, and for the opposite reason, like you were saying, there's 35 templates and all this stuff. One thing I love about Adobe Spark is there's like six templates, mm -hmm. four fonts. <laughs> it just... And you really get kids, kids are like, this is all I got to choose from. And the answer is yes. And you've got to be creative with all of these other parameters on you. And that's where I, a lot of times see the most creative things come out where kids actually, you know, produce things. And again, much like other programs, you know, Adobe Spark is more than just videos. They have, mm -hmm. you can do a social media cards, you can do presentations. Like there's a lot of different stuff you can do in there. Uh, and they do have the, if your school signs up for an account, this is just a good side note. If your school signs up for an account, you can use it with 13 and under kids as well. Adobe Spark is, is made for schools. So that's always a good thing to remember as well. So yeah. one of those things we're always dealing with in education. So Definitely. Awesome. Well, Rochelle, thank you so much for spending some time with us and, and talking about the stuff you're doing in your classroom. Uh, again, you can find find you all over the internet, but if somebody <laughs> wanted to get started, uh, where should they go? Where, where do you recommend them getting started, reaching out to you and, and following you? Or where, where do you hang out these days on the interwebs? Yeah, that's uh, mostly Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot. And okay. sometimes, sometimes when I'm tweeting, I'm not actually live tweeting because you, know, you can schedule some of those, but yeah, reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram. I have the same, it's R-D-E-N-E-915. And my blog site is the same thing. Just put all that in between the www and the .com <laughs> at the end. Uh, email, you can probably guess it's Gmail, but I try to keep it consistent. And uh, yeah, just send me any questions. If you have questions, ideas, like I would love to know what other people are doing. So don't hesitate to send me a message and reach out. I'm always happy to learn and to connect with other educators too. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for this. This has been really fun to talk. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And we'll make sure all of that stuff is in the show notes as well. Her Twitter, her LinkedIn, the Instagrams, the, the blog posts that we talked about, the podcast, of course, and everything else. So appreciate you hanging out with us today. Uh, and thanks again for taking time to just share your stories. Yeah, thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Shifting Our Schools. If you found this episode helpful or inspiring, please make sure to subscribe and leave the team a five-star rating. If you want to learn more about the Shifting Schools team or download our free resources, head over to shiftingschools.com to see what's on offer now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next week for another episode to keep rethinking the shifts our schools need.